Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Jennifer Jordan, who is Professor of Leadership and Organizational Behavior at IMD Switzerland. Her research focuses on the areas of digital leadership, ethics, influence, and power. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you so much, Gil. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with one of your papers, recent papers. Every leader needs to navigate these seven tensions and you have seven different tensions detailed. Uh, before we get into this, uh, Jennifer, I just want to mention so that you know my bias. I wrote a book in 2009. It's called Flexibility, Flexible Companies for the Uncertain World, in which I uh, incorrectly argued that companies, as we know, would not exist in the future because transaction costs are declining and will ultimately reach zero. I was clearly wrong on that prediction. <laughs> we have half a dozen companies uh, holding one third of the S&P 500 capitalization. So companies are getting bigger, uh, not going away at all. And I also incorrectly argued that um, in the future, it will be organizations with an objective uh, and diverse people will come together with diverse expertise to make an objective happen. And then after that, they will disband. So there's no permanent organizations, it is really temporary organizations. Like nomadic, nomadic organizations. <laughs> nomadic organization. I was wrong on that as well. So as I, as I look out now, things look exactly the same as it was in 2009. <laughs> uh, and so, so you, you, you do a lot of work in this area of, of leadership. And so you're talking about sort of management style and leadership style, right? And, and these tensions you talk about. The so first one is the expert versus the learner. So what do you mean by that? Yeah, so let me give you a bit of background just to step back, uh, Gil, and say how this started is that my colleague, Michael Wade, and I um, in at IMD wanted to understand like how has leadership changed in a time of digital disruption or in a time of, of, of digital transformation. And so we ran a study with over a thousand leaders and we looked at what, what competencies 
predicted their success in digitally disrupted environments, as was measured by their, their peers. And um, we, we came up with the seven, the seven competencies of what we call like the emerging world of the digital world, which was to be a good listener, to be able to analyze data uh, or make decisions with data, to work at speed, to, to be adaptable, to be visionary and have a clear vision for the future, to share power and to be kind of hyper aware, what we call the prospector, someone who goes out there and is aware of the opportunities and threats beyond just the immediate environment in which they work. And as we work, as we worked with this model, like any good business school professor, we had programs and assessments and all of that. But as we worked with this model, we realized that the most successful leaders in the business world were using these competencies. They were accelerators and they were visionaries and, and they had uh, the ability to listen and learn through listening. They were also sometimes being super traditional in their leadership. Um, they were showing very classic leadership competencies like holding power and being very constant and being a perfectionist and using their intuition instead of data, et cetera. And so rather than have these seven competencies that we, that we originally came up with, we reformulated it into seven tensions. And these are essentially tensions that a leader has between the emerging and the traditional worlds. Yeah, so I guess part of this tension is uh, sort of the evolution of organizations, right? So, um, you know, we don't have nuts and bolts companies anymore. So, you know, the the, uh, the principles of the firm put in agents so that they can track time uh, of employees, look at their productivity and so on. We don't have those types of companies anymore. So, you know, uh, time is not a good proxy for productivity anymore. It's innovation, research and development. And so in some sense, these tensions are, um, are unavoidable, right? We, the organization is changing, but the leaders are more classical <laughs> uh, because they've been, they've been doing this stuff for a while. Yeah, I don't necessarily know if I would frame it that way. And, and, I, would, you know, and I think you're right, Gil, in the sense that, uh, you know, yes, uh, time is a poor proxy for productivity or, efficient or effectiveness, but there are still many companies, especially we see it now in COVID, that are really struggling because they can't use time anymore as a measure of people's uh, effectiveness, right? And and the sense like, oh, you know, do I know that Johnny is is really working now rather than just you know goofing off or looking at Facebook because he's not in the office or going for a run? Um, there's still companies where this causes a lot of anxiety. So as much as you might want to hope that we have evolved. Beyond that, I think many, many companies are still stuck there. But I, but I don't. I think the way you frame the the traditional versus the emerging deal is a little bit like the the traditional is less good than the emerging, uh, or like less desirable. That's actually not what we find. Like sometimes a leader legitimate legitimately needs to hold power. Sometimes a leader legitimately has to tell the answer or give direction. Sometimes a leader has to be very deep and go kind of more in depth into a topic rather than being broad and being hyper aware of the external environment. So I wouldn't say like, oh, you know, the, the, the traditional world competencies are merely a holdover from a generation that is still in the workplace, but is evolving out. I would actually say that real leadership requires both, both sides of the, of the tension. 
Yeah, so that that's clearly my bias, uh, <laughs> Jennifer. Yes, so, okay. um, you know, I, I feel like uh, power has to be based on expertise. It cannot be based on position. So, for, for example, if you look in R&D companies, um, you, you will see leaders who don't have titles, uh, but they are actually admired by their colleagues. When there is a problem, they are, they are the first ones approached by them. And their power doesn't come from titles per se, right? And so I often wondered, um, this sort of hierarchical structure, uh, has it run its course or is it still useful? Uh, in yeah, I mean, I mean, I think philosophy would tell us, first of all, that humans, even when you get rid of hierarchy, they make their own. So I think there, there could be an evolutionary explanation for just the emergence of hierarchy, even if even if we essentially have like a leaderless group or what have you or a hierarchy, hierarchy free organization. But I think your other your other bias comes came out in what you just said that you said, like power shouldn't be based on titles or hierarchy, but on expertise. I would fully disagree with that. Um, I don't think power should come from expertise. I think power can come from many, many, many areas. I mean, power can come from the the network connections that you have. Uh, power can come from information that you have on people that you can either withhold or disclose. Power can come from the ability to reward people or to punish people. Um, power can come from, yes, for sure, expertise, but it can also come from allies, like who's backing you up in the organization. So. I don't necessarily believe that there's like a good source of power and that that source is expertise. I mean, especially if we think about, you know, in a sense, like expertise can be construed so many different ways. Like there's, you know, you talk about R&D, there's, there's technical expertise for sure, but there's also like expertise, as I said, like knowing your client or knowing a number of clients or um, expertise around just how to motivate a team, that's also expertise. So I, I wouldn't say like there's a should. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, having power come from the hierarchy makes things really, really clear. And there can be a lot of chaos when there is either no hierarchy or when power does not come from the hierarchy and people are looking for direction above and they don't necessarily find it. And it's also very cultural, right? I mean, go, go to Japan and tell them that hierarchy shouldn't come I mean, power shouldn't come from the hierarchy, and they'll look like we'll look at you like you have two heads. So, um, I yeah, yeah, I disagree with what you said. No, I I completely agree. So, what I mean by expertise is everything that you said: network connections, um, relationships, information. So, I don't mean expertise in a very narrow sense. Uh, so, what I mean yeah. is, you know, power comes from knowledge, information connections and so on. What I what I argue in the book and continue to believe, uh, I think is, you know, the um, existence of power because of a title that, you know, you become a CEO and you say, I am now powerful. <laughs> I'm going to go out and exercise that power. Uh, it is, um, it's a slippery slope in the sense that if you're, if you, if, if the company is very information based, and I think you talk about this in the, the next paper, millennials. Uh, when you think about the next generation, they don't look at power from titles uh, as that important, I think. So that is, that's what I mean. Yeah, so I, I don't know, maybe uh, this will be another, another um, uh, 
statement or whatever hypothesis from your book that is debunked. I'm not sure. But uh, but anyway, so I would say like I I I don't, you know, if I think about, you talked about millennials and I think there's a difference. There's a difference, first of all, Gil, between power and status. So power is like, as you said, I've just been, we can even think about this in dictatorships, right? Like, even though the people might have elected my, my uh, opponents, I'm going to hold power and I'm going to stay here and be your, your, your dictator, be your leader. Well, I'm not going to call these people leaders. I'm going to be your dictator, even if you don't want me. Right. And then people revolt. Well, this person obviously has hierarchical power because they're the president of the country or what have you, but they don't have any status. No one no one um, recognizes that. And I think those two things are very different. Uh, status is essentially others recognition of your power and others validation or or invalidation of it. We want to talk about a lack of status. But, you know, we talk we talk about millennials. And I think, yes, millennials do see hierarchy different um, and also Generation Z sees hierarchy different than um, than other generations, than generations before them. But I mean, is is there, you could also say for millennials or Gen, Gen Zs, um, you know, one of the markers of power for them is, is this idea of like the influencer and how many followers do you have? And I would say, you know, if you look at these influencers that have literally millions of followers and they make a darn lot of money in this role, and they're known by many, many, uh, many millennials and many Gen Zs. Are they necessarily operating from a, a power of expertise or is it more like a power of attractiveness? I mean, a lot of these people are, they have highly, highly edited videos. Uh, we could even get into beauty as a source of power or um, wealth as a source of power, which I think many of these influencers that millennials or Gen Zs follow are wielding as their source of power. Um, so I think, it, you know, we, we I'm happy to talk about different generational views of power, but I wouldn't necessarily say that the millennials replacement of hierarchy for something else is that they're necessarily wiser um, in how they're thinking about who holds power and who holds influence. Well, I, I don't know if they're wiser, but uh, I'm just observing things are changing. And, and so the organizational question would be, if you have sort of a status quo manager, and, and uh, that, that goes into your tension sphere. So the status quo manager says, this is how I have always managed, and I've been very successful. Um, but that may not be really a good enough reason to continue <laughs> in yeah. the world that, you know, that person has been doing, right? Because things are changing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you you hit the nail on the head, Gil, in the sense that there are so many managers, but not necessarily from a from a particular generation. I also see with some of the younger managers that they've you know, they have a certain way that has worked for them, maybe in a certain culture or in a certain organization. And it tends to be more of a command and control style. And they're just not going to to necessarily invest in changing it because there's so much uncertainty, right? When we change things, when we change our style in certain ways. So, yeah. Yeah, and there's risk um, that they have to manage. So do you want to talk a bit about these seven tensions that you talk about here? Sure, it's sure. Styles, right, in some sense? Pardon, say that again? Uh, th these are leadership styles, right, in some not sense? Not really, no. I mean, essentially, they're not necessarily styles because 
a style would say that it's something that a leader adopts. Um, so like I have a certain style of, of speaking or I have a certain style of dressing. These are actually tensions that we say at any point in time, a leader in real time has to manage which side of the, of the tension they should be practicing or should be, should be acting on. So essentially the seven tensions are listener versus teller. So a listener is somebody who um, believes that by listening to others, they can, they can learn um, and they understand that that only real innovation and growth comes from listening to others, sometimes others that are much lower in the hierarchy than themselves, I think getting to what you said earlier. Whereas a teller understands where they're experts and they're willing to assert their expertise and to step in and give direction when necessary. Um, the analyst is someone who uses data to make decisions, whereas the other side is the intuitionist and the intuitionist relies on their gut. And I think for me, what was most interesting when I interviewed people that were at highly innovative, very digitally oriented companies, they're like, yeah, people think we always are operating based on data. But actually, if you look at how we make decisions, when we actually want to be the first mover, there's no data to tell us what to do. We have to, you know, there's, of course, data we look at, but then after that, you have to go completely on your gut and you have to decide how to go forward without data and in an existing in ambiguity. And then we have the accelerator versus the perfectionist. The accelerator knows when to move forward um, at a high speed and the perfectionist knows when to stop and make sure that it's perfect. Um, we have the adapter, which is someone who is adapting to their environment when change is, is, is present. And then we have the constant, which is somebody who has a constant message and understands that sometimes when there's chaos or when there's anxiety in a group that bringing in constancy and saying, okay, these are the things we know can be very calming to the group. Um, then we have visionary versus tactician. The visionary is somebody who has a clear vision for the future and, um, and understands that a vision is very motivating to people, whereas a tactician understands that sometimes a, a vision can be a little bit abstract and a group needs actually more tact, uh, tactical next steps in order not to get caught in sort of a, a paralysis of, of, of uh, ambiguity or paralysis of abstraction. Um, and then we have the power share versus the power holder. So these are pretty, pretty clear. The power share knows when to share their power as a way to innovate and develop. Um, people or innovate ideas and develop people um, and the power holder knows when to hold their power in order to give direction and also sometimes to reduce anxiety in the group and then and in chaos um, then we have the prospector versus the miner the prospector is someone who goes wide and is quite hyper aware of the world or outside of their immediate area of expertise and how that world could pose both threats and opportunities for what they're interested in. And then the miner is someone who knows when to mine an idea and go really deep. And so, as I said, we say that each leader at, at any moment in time needs to evaluate which side of the tension they need to be practicing. And, and it's not that one side of the tension is better than another necessarily, but, uh, but really a leader needs to be sensitive to the environment and know how to play on both sides. Yeah, the, uh, the intuitionist, you say here, the, the person who makes gut-based decisions, 
is actually quite interesting. Um, and this is something that I, I again talked a little bit about. Um, so I was in a in a pharmaceutical company in the nineties, mm. and um, you know what I found was that there are a lot of gut based decision makers who would assert they are very good in making decisions, but exposed we find nothing. <laughs> we we could actually uh, just flip a coin or let a machine make decisions. In fact, uh, we, we use machine learning to, um, to, to make some of the portfolio decisions in the pharmaceutical context. And we found that human decision makers are significantly inferior uh, to machines. And so I want to get your perspective on this. So what I find in the marketplace is that um, leaders or managers assert that they are very good but they can't really prove it. They cannot really say how they make decisions. And it's ultimately a flip of a coin um, that doesn't really have any, any, any power from a, from a decision perspective. Yeah, so I mean, I think you, you bring up some important points. I'm 100% with you in saying that, you know, leaders that really think they're these excellent gut-based decision makers, which was a very, I think, an outdated model of leadership, like, you know, you're, you're hiring me for my wisdom and my experience, um, are not effective. But I think also leaders that rely 100% on the data and expect the data to always give them answers are also not effective. Um, so it, it again is this balance between the two because I mean, as the leaders that we work with that were super innovative said like, you know, at this point there is no data that's gonna tell us what to do. We have to say, we have a hunch. We kind of have a feeling that this is going to be the next thing or this is going to be the best way to, um, to work on this and we have to just go with it and learn from uh, learn from from what we do. So I think again, it's that it's like you don't want one versus the other because I also see so many managers, especially young managers, get into like an analysis paralysis cycle where they just never make a decision because they keep waiting on that data to give them an answer. And sometimes the data doesn't have the answer, right? Because the data is based on is always based on this history, even if you run you know, a bunch of uh, regressions or whatever to predict the future, it's still based on the past. So, yeah. Yeah, so I wasn't, I wasn't uh, suggesting uh, you, you do analysis, but they, what, what I wonder about is um, whether gut-based decisions really has any information power. So would the leader be better off just flipping a coin and say it's a new product, it heads, heads I go, tails I don't go. Um, yeah. Whether you know, their, their intuition is really helping them is, is unclear. Exposed. Yeah, I mean, what I would say is like, uh, you know, I would hope that obviously if you flip a coin, you have a 50% chance of being right. Um, and, we, and I don't know if the human is, is any better than that 50% chance, but I did study wisdom for about the first five years, I went to my PhD to study wisdom. And I do believe that there is this idea that some people do develop wisdom uh, from experiences in their life and from exposing themselves to different challenges. And maybe we can't articulate that knowledge, but I do believe that when it's combined with data, so when you bring both of those things together, yes, it is better than a mere flip of the coin, but can I give you any statistics on that? Can I back that up with data? No, I think I'm now working on my intuition when I answer that question. <laughs> yeah, the, the problem is uh, there's survivor bias, right? So when you look out to the market yeah. and say, these people are exceptionally good decision makers, 
um, they might be just lucky <laughs> as well, yeah. because there were thousand others um, who, who failed, and we only see the ones who succeeded. Um, so, so it's a very difficult, uh, I think, from a data analytics perspective to prove one way or the other, I think, right? Uh, so, so I want to go into this uh, other paper that you have, Cracking the Millennial Code. Uh, you say for the last five years, the influence of millennials, uh, these are people born approximately between 1980 and 2000, in the workplace has put pressure on many leaders and their organizations. Uh, but generational tensions are as old as generations themselves. Um, and so we talked a little bit about this. So, so from your perspective, um, we see this tension in companies, but I want to ask you, how do you see this playing out in the future? Uh, I would imagine these, uh, th this cohort of people will be the leaders of companies in the future, right? Uh, we won't have people from 1970s or 60s mm -hmm. leading, leading companies in the future. So, so how do you think that things will change as we look forward, let's say, 10 years? Yeah, and I mean, this is already the case, right? Because if you think about someone born in 1980, they're already over 40 years old. So they certainly could be at an executive level at this point in an organization. And we are starting to see it. It was great. It was great. There was this uh, there was this article in New York Times about a month ago talking about how millennials are already like the old ones and Generation Z are looking at them like, oh, my gosh, these people are so outdated and these people are dinosaurs. And so, I mean, of course, that, that generational tension is, is as old as the hills. What I would say is that, you know, where we see the millennials having influence in organizations, I would say is twofold. One, we talked about already, is kind of rethinking the hierarchy and giving people a chance before they pay their dues. So the, kind of this idea that, you know, older generation, Generation X and baby boomers and that and the silent generation was like, you had to go through you had to pay your dues. You had to, you know, move up the ladder at a certain pace. Millennials kind of debunked that or, or dismissed that idea. And I think you start to see that more now in organizations that, you know, it, maybe it's what you talked about is like knowledge is power. Um, it's not just based on how many years you've been in the organization or what your tenure is, but really like, what do you know? And I think like also giving more power to the employees that's also coming up. And we talked about that in our in our article, like this was a big shift that started to happen at the end of the Generation X, beginning of the millennial generation of like this child-centered upbringing, where it's not that children learn norms to fit into the society, but society better fit into that child's expectations of the world. And uh, I think we also see that starting to have influence. And again, this is super culturally relevant, right? So what we're talking about, I think you said you're, you're based in Connecticut, I'm based in Western Europe and Switzerland. And I think, you know, we are seeing these effects, but if you go to Japan, it's still, you know, I have a big program with a very, very well-known Japanese company, still hyper hierarchical and very much about moving up the hierarchy at a certain level, at a certain rate and respecting the seniority and everything like that. So um, what I think I'm referring to is still probably only a portion of the world that is is practicing this. Yeah. Yeah, I just it will be it'll be really interesting. So you will see this uh, sort of diversity in in cultural 
uh, aspects. Do you see that gap will continue to increase? Uh, the, the reason I'm asking, so the US, Western Europe continue on their path, more traditional countries, let's say India, Japan, China, continue sort of stay where they are. So you will see this gap sort of widening in the future, right? Yeah, I don't know. And I don't know what, it's a good question, Gail. I don't know what countries I would put in that more traditional. Definitely I would put Japan in there. Um, I might even put countries like France sometimes. You know, if you look at how hierarchy is respected or spoken to in France or even Germany, I mean, still hierarchy is very strong in many German companies. Whereas China is like super innovative and there's a lot of young people that are making a big impact in, in, in the society. And also like Vietnam is doing amazing things in terms of tech and, and innovation and, and rethinking the organization and startups and all of that. So it'd be really hard for me off the, off the top of my head to just name where, you know, what countries are going to make this movement and I think South America also some really innovative stuff going on there in terms of of organizational um, structure. But definitely, I think what I, what I was the point I was trying to make, I guess, is that I we both probably speak from a reference point of changes in culture and changes in generation that might not still be shared across the world. And and which countries fall into one bucket and which another, I couldn't say with certainty, but. Uh, but there are definitely differences, right? Yeah, so the other aspect here is uh, companies don't have permanent employees anymore. So coming back to the US or Western Europe, uh, there is a significant risk in technology companies because if uh, knowledge is residing on human resources, within human resources, and if they walk out of the door, the company is gone really, um, right? So. So how do you think, you know, going back to your tension paper, how do good leaders manage that, that sort of a transition? Uh, because you can't, you can't have permanent employees anymore. Well, I mean, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> Certainly, I'm still a permanent <laughs> employee. And uh, the majority of companies that send their participants to IMD uh, and pay a lot for each of their heads are, are many, many permanent employees. So I'm not going to say like, make a statement that that is that uh, ambitious and to say, you know, companies can't have permanent employees anymore. We certainly like see the trend around the gig economy and the great resignation and all that stuff. So I'm not denying that there is a trend going on, but I'm also not going to say like the, the permanent employee is dead. So I still appreciate my, my contract. Let's just say that. <laughs> um, what's interesting, Gil, I would say is like, or what I see is interesting is how more companies are actually embracing this in a way maybe not only with gig economy workers but i mean oftentimes especially in knowledge knowledge rich organizations right that the personnel is the biggest part of their expense and or the payroll is the biggest part of their expense and so essentially by doing away with this and hiring people based on the expertise you need at that moment can be really really powerful now you know, there is this argument, well, if they, they work for our competitors as well and five other companies, then how do we really distinguish ourselves? It's an interesting, I mean, I, I'm not an expert on this. It's an interesting conundrum, but you also see many, many more companies working on what is known as like open in innovation and being less about, you know, proprietary knowledge and more about how can we learn from each other in, in more of a coalition. And also like you see many companies now relying for, for cost reasons on open on open software. So 
I think the smart companies are actually embracing and finding ways to to work with these changes in the workforce rather than see it as a threat. Yeah, so I want to get your perspective. So the other thing here is sort of intellectual property question. So, yeah, so, so sure. what do we mean by intellectual property? Is it changing in the future? Um, you know, large companies have very large numbers of, as you know, very large numbers of lawyers going through that patenting process as a way to sort of lock down uh, IP. Um, I wonder if that is a sustainable process in the future. So if if the, the value of IP as we know it today is going to decline, that's another sort of a big change for these companies, right? Yeah, and I mean, that's, I think, uh, certainly this is so far from my expertise skills. So now I'm really talking on intuition um, and from the gut and really not on any data. So I, I, I start with that, uh, that disclosure. Um, I mean, I guess it's a classic question, too, about where the world is going just in general with intellectual property in the sense that in a world where it is a lot more about sharing and sharing ideas, how much can you also keep proprietary? And we see this a lot. You know, I'm going to talk more on my area of expertise now. Like we see this a lot with companies trying to control their employees on social media that they'll get on there and they'll announce some project that they're doing. And then someone else in another company will be like, oh, interesting. I'm working on something similar. What are you doing here now? Can you stop? Yeah, people can sign non-disclosure agreements, et cetera. But it's really hard to police all of this in a world where, number one, you're asking employees now to sit at home and to be isolated, to even isolate themselves further from communities of like-minded individuals. So I think, I, I don't know, this is, again, not so far from my area of expertise, do I sense a trend where there is going to be a lack of control of organizations around this intellectual property just because of this combination of human isolation and this need to drive communities and to share? Yes, I do. Can I say any more than that? No, I can't, sorry. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, all of these things are sort of interrelated, I feel. Uh, and so there is an overall organizational question. Um, I might be right after all, Jennifer. It might take another 20 years, but. <laughs> but sure. I think you mentioned are, as one of those people that were visionary, right? 20 years from now, <laughs> 2045 or something. Yeah, I mean, if, if you predict anything, they say it will be right at some point in time. It's a timing. Yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> it's probably true. Unfortunately, most of us will be dead by the point that that happens. But hey, that's right. There'll maybe right. be a, a Wikipedia page about us, and that's probably a good achievement. So, so I want to go into uh, another paper that you have. Uh, this is a little bit technical. So, antecedents of leaders' power sharing. The rules yeah. of powering stability and distrust. Um, so you say, all the previous research has identified various beneficial consequences of power sharing. Less research has examined antecedents of leaders' power sharing. So to address this gap across five studies, um, you, your present research identifies uh, important social and psychological barriers to leaders' power sharing. So, so you have you have uh, real data here and, and studies that you have done. So what do you find? Yeah, yeah. So I will also credit by the first author of this paper is my former PhD student who's now a professor in Amsterdam, Sana Feenstra. So this is really her brainchild. But uh, essentially, um, 
Gillen, and I know you said it sounds very technical, which it does. And that's one thing I've learned moving from straight academia. So I spent the, I guess since my PhD started in 20, 2000 to the time I went to IMD in 2016. So the first 16 years of my career in a very traditional academic environment. And, you know, what I learned is that if you want to publish in these top journals, you have to sound really smart in the title. So <laughs> we use big words like antecedents and, uh, and all that stuff. But really, I mean, essentially what we're looking at is we're saying many studies have told you what is why you should power share and why it's good. And we want to look at what makes a leader power share with whole power. That's pretty much what the paper is about and the role of trust in that in that relationship. But my main area of research, and it has been since around 2006, 2007, is um, power and stability. So not necessarily the effects of power on people's behavior, but more specifically the effects of destabilizing or stabilizing that power. Because essentially, like, power is the unspoken currency in society, right? Like, it makes you be heard, it makes you get things you want or not be able to get things you want, it makes you be adored, it makes you, you know, it's, it's a very important construct. And so when people threaten to take it away, uh, or when you feel it's threatened to be taken away, people react quite negatively. <laughs> and so what we wanted to look at in this, in this paper was essentially how does power and stability affect people's power sharing? And you know, on a, on a logical standpoint, you would say, okay, when I, as a leader, am feeling my power is threatened, it actually helps me to go out there and get allies from my group by sharing a little bit of my power and trying to actually perform better by bringing in more diverse opinions. But you see the actual, op actual opposite is that when, when leaders feel like their power is destabilized in a negative direction, meaning they're going to get less maybe in the future, um, they start hoarding their power and isolating themselves and not trying to share their power with others. And the reason why is because they all of a sudden develop this distrust of the environment around them that everyone's out there to get them. We even have evidence showing using a traditional paranoia scale that when a leader feels like their power is threatened, they actually start to become paranoid that like the world is out there plotting against them and they misconstrue basic interactions that they perceive between people as actually interactions that people are trying to you know, thwart their success, et cetera. So um, I really like this paper. I think it's really important for just in general showing how reactive leaders are to power and stability. And I think right now we see that so much in organizations, right? There's so much insecurity and wondering what my future is going to be and am I going to be here any longer? And, you know, who's going to take over my position and should I trust people? And And, you know, I think also what we see are some of the, really negative effects on that as people isolating themselves and not sharing sharing their power. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. Um, I don't know if this is the right way to think about it, Jennifer. I want to get your perspective. So if I think about power as a resource yeah. and it has some value for me, uh, but it also has value in transactions, I can use that if I share that with, with somebody uh, there is there is value created in that transaction. So, if if just holding power is less valuable for somebody, then they will share it because they they create value through that sharing, right? And so, so I, I guess there are, there are two issues there. One is 
is the leader able to value power appropriately? I don't know. I don't know that answer to that question. But assuming that they are able to value power, there might be sort of a some sort of game theoretic approaches to understanding why and when they share power potentially, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I think you know we. I'm sure that an economist could do a a model that can predict uh, when people choose to share with whole power. And maybe some of it is very rational. Um, but uh, can I speak to that? No. And then and I love it. You speak like such an economist. Uh, certainly uh, way above my head. I'm not smart enough for the, that kind of stuff. So <laughs> I'm just yeah, a stupid psychologist. About, yeah. So you talk about power instability. Um, so sort of the association between power instability and power sharing. Um, and so that, that is what you talked about in terms of they, they, they create distrust once you start to hold power. So there's some sort of a limit, right, at which things sort of break down in the organization. Uh, do you see that or no? Can you, can you maybe say that again? I don't, I don't think I'm following yeah, you. Yeah, so, so let's say, you know, you've thought, thought experiment, there's a leader who likes to hold power. Yes. And continues to do so, but then it creates some level of distrust in the organization. So at, at, the, so at some point, there's some sort of optimum holding of power. Yes, yes, yes. gives you value, right? And, yeah. and, and I don't know if necessarily that leaders withholding power creates distrust in the organization towards that leader, although I think that's a very valid possibility. But certainly that leader starts to distrust his or her environment much less. And so I do think and I do wonder when that, you know, obviously if that distrust gets to such a high level and people are so paranoid, then you're going to almost start to see like physiological effects of, of fear where like, you know, the, the, the leader is essentially working off their adrenal system and their cortisol the whole time and then they end up getting sick and they're not able to function, et cetera. So, I mean, I think you can also say like, you know, this, this, instability that leads to the low uh, trust that leads to then the hoarding of power, yes, certainly does have a shelf life. It can only exist for so long. And I think that's also why I really worry right now, Gil, about the uncertainty in our environment that we're providing with our employees, because, you know, oftentimes not only do they not know what my job is going to look like next month, but what will my, will my company still be here? Will I be able to spend time with my family or am I going to be, you know, shut up in my house for the next year again? And I think there are, you know, there are meaningful and we have another paper on power and stability and stress. And we find that when people are feeling like their power is unstable, especially for continuous periods of time, they experience significantly more stress. And we know that stress has meaningful physical effects. So I think like, yes, this is a model that after time things will collapse when people are under these conditions um, for extended periods, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, we have shareholders uh, providing economic incentives to, uh, to you know, C-level execs and managers of the firm. Do you see, uh, is there a way for shareholders to uh, sort of provide incentives to optimize power? <laughs> I, I don't know, I mean, I'm just, uh, is there a mechanism that shareholders could could devise to, to optimize organization. You mean optimize how power is shared across the organization? How, yeah, if there is an optimum power sharing that shareholders yeah. would like, let's say, yeah. um, can they actually make that happen? 
a great question. What would be the mechanisms in which they would do that? Um, so the board, I would imagine, you know, uh, will look at the CEO and say, you know, they can understand where the CEO stands in terms of power sharing, perhaps. And if the board understands, maybe that is not quite optimum. Um, I'm thinking more incentives, you know, like stock options. Are there are there instruments that uh, shareholders could use to to effect good behavior from from C level execs? I wonder. I mean, you would say theoretically, and again, this is like so beyond my area of, of expertise. You could say that um, obviously, or you would think that power sharing would affect long term innovation of the company and and ability to retain employees. So almost doing more long-term incentives for leaders would encourage this power sharing because it's not just about their quick wins. But I mean, you would also say on the, on the reverse side of it, just merely having shareholders where a company needs to have like quarterly returns that they report, is that dissuading power sharing and in, 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 you know, initially, because essentially sometimes in order, you know, when we share power, we're often sharing with people that are below us in the hierarchy. They might have more interesting ideas and ideas that are more innovative, but maybe it takes more time to realize their effects. I mean, if we think about some of the, the really big innovations, they have seven, eight years, 10 years before they actually start being profitable in any way. So, I mean, you could say, okay, long-term incentives, might be helpful, but maybe that mere quarterly reporting that shareholders are demanding if it's publicly listed is an ex initial or in its inception going against the idea of sharing power. I don't know. Now I'm just totally, totally rambling <laughs> because I don't know any of this stuff. Sure. Yeah. So, so in conclusion, Jennifer, um, so, so you were here in, in the US, your PhD was here. Now you are at IMD in, in Switzerland. Uh, I don't know much about Switzerland, but I, I was wondering, and you put sort of Western Europe and US in the same bucket uh, before, but, but do you see differences between the US companies and let's say Swiss companies? And if so, what would be sort of the big differences between them? Culture, I'm, I'm thinking culturally and organizationally. Mm. So it's been a long time since I've been in the U.S. Um, and I don't work with many U.S. companies anymore. I haven't lived in the U.S. since 2000, 2009. Um, or I would see, I think, the biggest... I don't know. It's really hard for me to say. I don't want to stereotype either country. I think there's many different aspects. Like I, I love the American idea of you know, anything is possible. And it's, it's very much about youth and the next generation, I felt like. But I also can say that if looking at the U.S. over the last five to seven years, I don't really recognize the country that I left or I grew up in. So this idea that anything's possible in the American dream, I don't know if that's still the case. So I think maybe I'm, I would be talking about a U.S. that was a nostalgic version of the U.S., where I do see it quite different in Swiss companies, I would say is the education track that it takes to get into business in, in Switzerland. Oftentimes, like most of Europe, you're tracked pretty early. 
So it's determined, you know, what is going to be your profession quite young, around 12 years old. But I think in the U.S. there's this um, stubborn, uh, stubborn refusal to let go of the university system, that everyone needs to go to university and everyone needs to get a university degree that's four years. And I don't know, I mean, I think there's a lot of, a lot of productivity that comes out of a Swiss system where there's also apprenticeship and more applied education for people that maybe necessarily don't want to do the, you know, four-year liberal arts. And I think there is are some real benefits, as I said, around innovation and practical knowledge. And there's some amazing innovations that are coming out of very small Swiss companies. But to make any general generalizations between the U.S. and Switzerland, I couldn't do. Yeah, I mean, uh, I live here, Jennifer, and I don't sometimes recognize uh, the country <laughs> anymore. Yeah. Uh, talking about power and loss of power and distress, uh, we can distress. see our ex-president ex uh, going through some distress because of loss of power. <laughs> and so so uh, I think that's a real issue um, mm. for, for organizations. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I have to say, Gil, uh, I have a hard stop, so it's been lovely to talk with you, but I do need to uh, to leave now. Uh, so thank you for this this time together. It's been a really interesting. I hope it's also interesting to your listeners. Excellent. Yeah. Thanks so much, Jennifer. Pleasure. Pleasure. And have a good holiday season. Bye. You too. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.